Good morning, everyone. I am Renee Bernhard, the founder and the director of Foster Source. This is learning more about the Colorado Child Welfare Ombudsman and what they do. We are thrilled to host this this morning. This is the first time we've ever hosted something like this, so it's extra exciting for us. Feel free to chat amongst yourselves in the chat or with us in the chat. If you have a question for the Deputy Ombudsman, feel free to submit it in the Q&A. She's got a presentation for us. She's got some videos for us. We are super excited. Um, Ombudsman uh, Villafuerte was called away at the last minute, as often happens with, with folks in, in those positions. But uh, Deputy Ombudsman Jordan Steffen is here, and we are in excellent hands. Jordan is actually the one who usually does this presentation for the Ombudsman. <laughs> so we're good to go, and we are just thrilled that you are here. Jo she's kindly said we can call her Jordan. So thank you, Jordan. <laughs> thank you for, for being here, and take it away. Great. Well, thank you all so much for having me. Um, I was sharing with um, Lindsay and Renee a little bit before uh, everyone signed on how much I enjoy um, presenting and working with foster parents. They are always um, the most engaged and robust conversations. So I'm very excited to be here. I'll admit I'm, I'm a little nervous. This is the largest group of foster parents I've ever uh, presented to. Um, so before I pull up my slideshow, I just um, want to please encourage you to ask questions. Please interrupt. I've designed this presentation um, with enough time to make sure that happens. Um, and I really wanna hear from you. So I'm gonna get my slideshow going and hope that we avoid. Um, oops. Okay. Um, and can everyone see that? Lindsay and Renee, is that up on your screen? It sure is, looks great. Great, okay. So this is Ombudsman 101. Um, a large portion of this presentation does focus on the work of the Child Protection Ombudsman Office specifically. However, I am aware that we have um, some participants from various areas of the country. Um, and I'm very excited about that because a big portion of this will look at Ombudsman practice in general. So along that, here's how we're gonna to proceed today. Um, we're gonna to do a little bit of introductions. Um, I'm so bummed we can't be in person. Um, and I know there's a little bit of lag in Zoom, but um, I wanna take some time at the beginning of this presentation to really just get to know some folks who are participating today, um, why you've chosen to be a foster parent. Um, it's a lot of work, it's, it's really incredible work. And, I, and it always helps me to um, know a little about the participants and it always helps the agency. So I'm doing a little bit of um, information gathering um, about why this presentation was interesting to you. Um, so we're gonna start that. I will also make sure to share a little bit about myself and how I got here. Um, then we're gonna move into the history of Ombudsman work and the CPO specifically. And the reason I want to talk about Ombudsman work broadly is because I think the development of the practice, the development of what I call the industry is really important for providing context about how we serve families, how other Ombudsman offices across the country can serve families and what our role is. Um, it's very unique to the specific agency, to the jurisdiction, um, but there are certain tenants that run through the work that I think it's really helpful for everyone to know. And then we're gonna talk about the history of this agency because uh, in our short 10 years, it's been pretty diverse. We've gone through some ups and downs. And I think that again, helps to demonstrate 
why we exist in state law the way that we do and why um, our practices proceed in the way that they do. Um, then we're gonna move into specifics about our agency, our jurisdiction, our responsibility, our roles, um, our case practices and work. And here I'm gonna do some examples of our work with foster parents in the past. Um, I've got some great case examples, talking through how we process some of those cases and what we can do with that work and some of the resolutions we were able to um, work through. And then also wanna talk a little bit about how we serve as a resource for foster youths themselves. Um, we've put a lot of energy in the past, I wanna say year to creating resources for youth across Colorado um, and why we feel that direct contact can be just as beneficial um, as our contact with caregivers. And then of course, um, wanna give you our contact information and then really looking forward to our Q and A session, but please um, interrupt me as we go. And so this is just where I would love to hear um, from everyone, I mean, or whoever is willing really to, oop, that did not go. Um, who was willing to share, just to tell me a little bit about why you became a foster parent, throw it in the chat, one or two sentences, um, and, and, and why you keep coming back to do that work. I'm, I'm so amazed by the generosity and really the work ethic of every foster parent I meet. Um, I would just love to know a little bit about um, why you became a foster parent, what your concerns about the current system may be, and um, if, if time, why you're interested in this training. Great question. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Great question. Maybe add maybe how long you've been fostering or if you even knew there was a child welfare ombudsman. Um, I didn't <laughs> when I was fostering. Um, so yeah, if you don't mind, share with us a little bit and this will be this will be interesting. My husband and I fostered for three years in Adams County. Um, we had a great experience, it, but it was much, much harder than we ever anticipated it would be. Um, and that was kind of the genesis for Foster Source was, wow, that was super hard. And there mm -hmm. must be ways to make that a little bit softer. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that is our story. Someone says, we don't know what the ombudsman is, but we keep hearing the name and we want to learn. That's as good as, of a reason as any. That's great. Um, because it's an incredible, incredible agency that does a lot of work and can really help. Uh, Christy says, I was a foster group home parent for 18 years, working primarily with youth. I've been working for my licensing agency for five plus years, and I'm currently the foster care supervisor, looking to gain more insight and information to pass on to my families. Great. That is the best type of <laughs> foster care supervisor that there can be is one that is always looking to provide more information to, yes, we love to it. their families. And um, at the end of this, um, I do have some links that will go to some collateral that you can print. Um, I Perfect. have hard copies of all of this that I'm happy to send out to agencies with flyers and posters. So um, again, those are resources I'm happy to distribute to whomever might find them useful um, after this presentation. Perfect. And we can um, load those into the handouts tab as well so that they're archived here. Great. Someone says, I'm a CASA advocate involved in passing laws to better position the youth in New Mexico. We currently do not have an ombudsman. And I'm here to learn what exactly the role is. And I think, you know, Jordan, when you and I talked before and you were saying, what do you think the most important thing is? That's exactly what I said, right? Like what, when do we call the ombudsman for, for what types of things? So that's exactly what we're going to cover. 
Fantastic. Uh, Marilyn says, in New Mexico, we're one of only 11 states without a role like yours. We need one. Would love to learn more from you. Great. I've been a foster parent since 2009. Wow, Shelly. Snaps for you. Well done. We love making a difference for children. Just wanted to get more information. Great. And Vince says, became foster parents to help provide a stable home to a child in need. I'm attending this to understand what percentage of claims are actually pursued. Oh, that's interesting. And to understand the interaction between the counties and the state. Exactly. Got it. I've been fostering for three years. We want to help kids who needed a home. I'm here because I had a very unfortunate case that I worked with that ended in a fatality. Oh, goodness. I'm very interested in how the system can better protect kids. Absolutely. Great. I became one to make a difference. Been doing it for 10 years. Started with Sabio House with boys from detention. Then changed to Safi. Blessed to have my girl for four years. Both great agencies. I've heard of ombudsman in relation to elders. I want information on more ways to advocate for our foster kids. There really needs to be more work to fix the system. Absolutely. Fantastic. And William says, just wanted to give back. We thought we wanted to adopt. We're drawn to fostering. We are in our third year and currently have an 11 month old with us. He joined us at two months and is heading towards termination. We helped reunify our first two with their mothers. Excellent. What a great group. Thank you all yeah, for sharing. Thank you all for sharing. Um, and I have made notes on, on some of the questions that were posed, particularly regarding um, questions about fatalities. Um, so I have that question marked um, and I, I will address it um, when we get into our agency. But again, um, Renee, Lindsay, jump in at any point because um, I don't think I can see the chat or the questions as I have my slideshow up. So please yep. interrupt me. Yep, will do. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, I promised I would share a little bit about myself. Um, I did not begin my career in child welfare. Um, I actually, well, let me back up even further. I grew up in Colorado. Um, I grew up in a very small mountain town called Granby. Um, my graduating class had 92 kids. I tried to go to the big city for a little bit after I graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder with a journalism degree and um, eventually came back home because I really, really do love Colorado and I love the systems and um, the people here. So my career prior to coming here as a journalist, um, I have written for the Denver Post, Smithsonian's Magazine, the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune. My longest time um, at any one publication was the Denver Post, which was a great joy for me coming back and writing for my home state newspaper. Um, here, I just, this is always a fun picture because it just demonstrates how diverse the coverage I had um, at the Post really was. I mean, I was uh, in depth avalanche training on this day and I was very cold, but um, I got that quote. And um, I also covered mass shootings. I was the legal affairs reporter for several years. So I covered a lot of court trials as well. One of the biggest stories I worked on at the Post was a eight part series um, called Failed to Death that did examine specifically the rates of child fatalities that were happening in our state for children who died um, while in the care of child welfare services, not um, in foster homes specifically, but who had at least open cases with child welfare services across the state. Um, that work really sparked an interest and a passion in me um, for looking at policies and how do we make things better? And it just didn't make sense to me that there had been so many pieces of policy work and research done and we just weren't implementing. And I was very fortunate um, when Stephanie Villaforte became the ombudsman to have an opportunity to come over in a part-time position in 2016 and have since just kind of worked my way up. Um, one of the 
best viewpoints I think I've brought to this agency and to ombudsman work specifically is I actually covered um, the development of this office um, and the pushback that happened when it was developed, the pushback and the pros that happened when this agency moved for independence, which we'll discuss in a little bit. So I have really seen from the public's perspective what the fears are and what the public finds as beneficial in ombudsman offices such as these. So I'm so fortunate for the path that I have taken to get here and it really has helped to shape my perspective on the work. Um, so again, I'm gonna jump and I'm gonna start from the basics. What's in a name? Um, the word ombudsman is actually of Swedish origins and it means agent or representative of the people. It truly um, at its base was designed to be a neutral entity. The word is gender neutral. We are designed to help citizens <clears throat> navigate large government systems, big bureaucracies, and those systems are charged with providing services to citizens and in our case, families. And um, what we do is by taking in those complaints, by giving citizens voice, we not only allow our agency to shed light on, or ombudsman agencies broadly, excuse me, um, on what may be issues impacting a citizen's ability to get the services and support they need from government, but by giving them knowledge, by legislators giving legislators knowledge and other knowledge, that helps to hold government systems accountable. And a little bit, we'll talk about how our agency publishes our findings. Um, a very interesting tenet of most ombudsman work is we have no statutory authority to mandate anyone does anything. We do have strong statutory authority to publish our findings and our work and put it into the public sphere to give that to legislators, to give it to policymakers and to give it to citizens and families. And that is where our teeth comes from. Very, very big bites. And I might add that, you know, the, the court of public opinion in terms of policy in this work is, is very strong. Um, and I think that's what makes ombudsmen very flexible and very um, creative in their work. Um, we go by a variety of different, go ahead Renee. So you are, not under CDHS. No, no, and I'll, I'll discuss um, our structure, but we okay. are completely independent um, and we had a very unique pathway to get there, but our structure currently exists as this. We are an independent agency overseen by the very first Ombudsman Advisory Board. So we have members of our board who are appointed by all three branches of government. Um, that board serves solely in an advisory role. So they are responsible for the hiring and hopefully never firing of the ombudsman. And then they provide advice and guidance on our budget, um, some of our work, but we do truly sit independent. We're quote unquote housed in the judicial department. Um, so I am sitting today in the Colorado Ralph Carr Judicial Center, but even the chief justice of the Colorado Supreme Court frequently jokes that they're just our landlord. And that's very true. Um, we just contract with them for services such as phones um, and, and data support and HR support. Um, so we are truly independent. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, By the great. way, real quick, sorry to interrupt. I did find, I think, your series that you wrote for the Denver Post, the Failed to Death series, and I've yeah. linked to it in the chat, everyone. Oh, thank you. Um, it's a long time. It's been a while since I've read it. So, um, And so I think it's also just helpful to note that not ombudsman offices across the country aren't always uh, called ombudsman offices. And some examples of that are you have the New Hampshire Office of the Child Advocate. Uh, you have Minnesota Ombuds Person for Families. Uh, Washington State goes by the Office of Family and Child Ombuds. 
So uh, while we all have the same role, we, we have um, very unique titles. And so um, if anyone is ever looking for a list of ombudsman offices across the country, specifically child protection ombudsman offices, I'm happy to provide that to you because they don't always go by the same name. And while we might go by different names, um, we all have central tenants in our work. Um, and those are actually guided by you know, more than 100 years of practice. We have um, organizational structures across the country and internationally. Ombudsman offices have practice standards that have been set by the Coalition of Federal Ombudsmen, International Ombudsman Association, and the United States Ombudsman Association. Um, and these offices exist both in public government spheres, as I've mentioned, but they can also exist um, privately within um, corporations. You'll often see ombudsman offices housed in university settings. Um, so they can exist differently and how they exist in those private settings can affect their autonomy and how they handle cases. So anytime you engage with an ombudsman office, it's really important just to ask for that explanation. What is your authority? Are you independent at to what level and what is your autonomy? Um, but again, um, we do have standard practice that come from the three organizations on the screen now, but we also work with other agencies um, to kind of set standards that will parlay well into other areas of practice. And a great example of that is the American Bar Association. The American Bar Association has handed down guidance that it gives to ombudsman offices to help ensure their practice is truly independent, neutral, and objective so that attorneys can utilize ombudsman offices more frequently. And we, the CPO, have worked very hard in the past year to branch out into the ABA so that lawyers um, in Colorado and across the country are more aware of our work, more aware of our practice, and better able to utilize us. Um, we exist independently. We write uh, reports independently and we don't advocate for any side. But if you're an advocate as an attorney and you have that information, it can be extremely, extremely useful. But I digress. Today we are focusing on child protection ombudsman offices. And so I really want to go to how did the child protection ombudsman model form? And it goes even further back from the formation of the first office to the development of legislation concerning the protection and well-being of children. Um, and this is internationally and nationally, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened in the country so far. Um, ombudsman offices can kind of mimic and be seen in tandem with the development of this legislation. So some acts that have gone through that kind of spurred this are the enactment of the Social Security Act, the Child Welfare Funds, Child Abuse and Pre Prevention Treatment Act, CAPTA, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, Adoption Safe and Families Act, Families First Prevention Services Act, which I'm sure most people on this call are very, very familiar with. As these laws and regulations were passed, they created a new constituency group, children. Um, children who needed protecting because we had obviously identified that as a statutory and a legislative need. Um, but what it also did is it created the need for oversight because as these laws were enacted and as they were put into place, it became very apparent you needed an oversight mechanism to make sure that government entities were following those rules and regulations accordingly, particularly if those entities were charged with providing services to those groups. Um, and the development of the Ombudsman Office model, excuse me, is really interesting because it developed basically two houses of each set of services. One is the individual case handling, taking complaints, working through individual cases, but it also became um, really a powerhouse in policy. You know, what are we seeing in trends and how can we amend these laws and how can we write new laws and how can we get public policy for the protection, well-being and safety of children to advance in this country as well. So um, 
again, you see the advancement um, of child protection offices move in tandem with the creation of legislation. And I think it's very interesting to note this trend continues today. That's um, what I wanted to ask Jordan, if you don't mind, go back to the slide yeah. before. When legislation, one more back. When legislation like this is coming through, is your office consulted? Are they asking you, do you think this is a good idea? Um, I, I think or feel like the Families First Act is, is actually very similar to the CAPTA, right? I feel like we're, we're going in a circle here, right? Um, what, what is your influence on policy? That's a wonderful question. Um, we are consulted more and more as we become a little bit more norm, a little bit more um, known in the federal sphere. Um, our ombudsman, Stephanie Villaforte, actually chairs the United States Ombudsman Association's um, Child Protection Subgroup. So she also sits on the National Association of the Council for Children Board. So we've nudged our way into the federal sphere pretty aggressively. Um, and so I can't say we've been consulted heavily on. Um, any legislation that went through before 2016, but we were contacted as Families First was molding and shifting and growing. On the state level, we are contacted frequently. Um, you know, we're very involved in, in legislation over at the Capitol. You may not see us testify as much as you do other agencies, but we are definitely consulted on, on do you think this is a good idea? What would you do? Will you come on board? Um, we are very judicious and, and selective in what we publicly support because we need to maintain um, our neutrality and our objectivity, but if something is going to advance and protect and be for the betterment of children, we will support it and we will work with lawmakers and other stakeholders to get legislation passed. So there were a number of bills, um, and this information is available on our website as well, um, that we have supported um, this session. Um, we actually, and I'm, I'll talk about this a little later, um, we work on our own legislation as well. So we're very involved in the public policy sphere in terms of um, drafting and writing legislation. And that does correlate with some of the investigative and trend work that we do that I'll articulate um, in just a little bit, but we're very, very involved in the public policy sphere as well as the casework sphere uh, regarding the individual complaints that we receive. Does that? Okay, yeah, that helps. Would, would stakeholders reach out to you with concerns or better to their representatives? It can be an and both, honestly. Okay. Um, it kind of depends on how it develops. If if um, if there is a piece of legislation introduced, we do always recommend going to the, the legislators so they hear from their constituents. That is gonna be the biggest driving factor is, is hearing from a constituent directly. But if there's an issue you feel is not addressed in law or regulation, and I'll talk about some reports we've done, um, that's where we come in. When we hear from enough constituents or we hear from enough uh, citizens that this is an issue, we'll draft a report and we frequently make recommendations for legislative and regulatory changes. Um, I'll speak to a report in a little bit, but in 2017, we released a fairly in-depth report regarding the state's um, adoption assistance legislation. And what we found in that report was um, gross inconsistencies between Colorado's county departments and how they were negotiating adoption subsidies for families. And, and it was an equity issue. Some counties would start at zero and you started at zero and maybe got Medicaid. Other families would work down from the foster care rate. And it's been a huge issue. And so we drafted a very in-depth report and actually made a recommendation to the Colorado General Assembly to amend the state's adoption assistance legislation because it was 30 years old. 
and federal legislation had been amended in the past four. It didn't even reflect federal guidance. And so we led the charge in 2018 and 2019 to completely overhaul the state's adoption assistance um, law. It went from being three paragraphs. Dang, to yeah. Um, right after our county said, we offer you zero and we said, okay. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but to, to that point, that was the exact issue. Like families weren't being provided um, consistent information about the program at all or what they were entitled to. And so now under this new law, um, you should be given information about the adoption assistance program up front. Um, you should be allowed to bring your GAL to any negotiation meeting or an attorney or anyone with information about the child. So there's, that's kind of the work we're doing. And right now I'm in my second year of working to ensure that volume seven and the regulatory authority correctly mimics the legislation and the intent of the legislation. Awesome, awesome. Um, am I okay to go on or does that answer? Yes, that? go ahead. Mm -hmm. Great, um, thank you for interrupting, sincerely. Um, so I just kind of want to go through um, a little bit of the development of ombudsman offices, child protection ombudsman offices specifically in the country. Um, you know, when I started this work, there were 30 ombudsmen, child protection ombudsmen in the country. Today, we have more than 40. We are the fastest, one of the fastest growing government agencies to be developed across um, the United States. And we again, began back in the 60s. Um, uh, I'll talk a little bit just quickly about um, the different structures of ombudsman offices, but um, you can see clearly the development of how this works. So you have Rhode Island, um, the Juvenile Assistance Delinquent Protection Act, which moved into other ombudsman offices. So um, federal efforts and state efforts have been strengthening during the past two decades to build more of these offices. Um, and I think it's worth noting, um, and I just wanna make sure I'm in the right place here. I lost my flow a little bit, excuse me. Each of these offices is designed differently. So it's really, again, important if you're working with an ombudsman office to ask about their uh, statutory structure. For example, the Rhode Island office is made up of a, um, almost entirely attorneys. So if you make a complaint to that agency, they can serve as an intervener on your case. Our office has no authority to intervene or even interfere in any kind of court proceedings. So um, I just give you this slide as a demonstration of why it's so important to be very touched, uh, excuse me, tuned in to the ombudsman offices you may be working with because there will be difference in autonomy and authority. Um, and while child protection ombudsman office, I think you know we've covered a lot of this. Um, we all know the statistics about children who you know, go through the child welfare system and the child protection system broadly. Um, and so we've really worked in to become an additional voice for children and families struggling with these systems. Um, you, there is a need for accountability. And again, the ability to write reports, gather independent data and put that information out without the interference of any state department is hugely valuable to the citizens um, that we serve. Um, and, you know, I think unfortunately, um, given the nature of the work and the growing intricacies of the systems that make up child protection, I think our ombudsman offices are gonna be needed for this foreseeable future. And again, just wanna quickly move through some examples of the different types of jurisdictions and, and structures you can have of ombudsman offices. Um, you can have general jurisdiction agencies. So Hawaii, Iowa, Arizona, these are really big ombudsman offices and they will deal with everything from prisons, transportation, child welfare, um, you know, utilities. They will have in-house uh, independent units that will look at these different things. 
those are very, very big offices. I think Iowa right now has something of upwards of 20 staff. We are eight and we handle child protection specifically. Um, sizes and budgets and day-to-day -day operations will shift again. Um, and some agencies are independent. There has been a slowdown in um, efforts to establish child protection ombudsman offices at the federal level. And I think that's largely because we have found that they serve a utility best at the local level where they can integrate into systems and be very, very aware of how independent practice is happening. And Colorado is a great example of that. We're a local control state. We have 64 county departments of human services. I'm sorry, we have 64 counties and 59 departments of county of human services. And those departments have a lot of discretion in how they administer services in um, their jurisdictions. And so the ability of a child protection office to mold into the jurisdiction that they serve um, has proven to be really, really beneficial. Um, and one way I think that's demonstrated again is, is an understanding um, how the practices work. And just to demonstrate how different the autonomy of an agency can be, some ombudsman offices um, will house fatality reviews for their state in-house um, and coordinate with human services. Some will house the entire system for the state and will coordinate with human services for the release of the reports. And some will do it completely independent as our office does. And I'll explain that in a little bit, um, but just to show like the nuance of the work can be, can be really interesting. Sorry. Um, so best practice standards. What is crucial in our work? Um, this you will find is a consistent among all ombudsman offices you work with. They should be independent to some level. Now you may be housed in a government agency, but you should have autonomy if structured correctly in your enabling statute to work autonomous of those other systems. Impartiality is key. Um, we always explain that when a case comes into our office, we do not serve as an advocate for either side. We have to take a fully independent look, gather uh, information independently. We have independent access to trails records and other documents. We are entitled to that information. Um, and so you work in your own scope and then you release that information out. Um, and that should say, uh, yeah, confidential. All of our services are confidential and that's true for ombudsman offices across the country. Incredible. Um, the work that we do is very important um, and it works at a very high standard because it will be scrutinized very, very closely. And so the role, um, again, we receive complaints, it's free. Uh, we investigate specific incidents, we review cases at individual and system-wide levels. Um, we have independent access to information. Um, and I wanna just draw your attention to one of the last points here is um, one of the rarer things a lot of ombudsman offices do is um, big investigations. We do a lot of case specific work where we work to resolve things at the lowest level possible. But that policy work we've talked about is taking aggregate data from those cases and doing larger investigations and policy reports, which I'll articulate for our office a little bit more later. Um, and again, um, you know, the benefits of the ombudsman, I think I can move through this, um, but just a few things that are worth noting um, as you see more of these offices hop, pop up across the country. Um, we amplify voices, people who call us um, seldom how are we their first phone call? It's not rare that we get a call from a citizen who has gone through three other complaint processes within the systems they're trying to get help from. We amplify their voices to bring them back to those systems and say, you're not listening and you need to hear this. Um, sometimes uh, a phone call 
to our office is enough to get that agency to come in and sit down with our client and have a conversation. We also coordinate and we bring big agencies together to work on that public policy changes. Like I talked about an adoption system, we ran um, more than 40 hours of stakeholder meetings for that legislation. We had more than 30 agencies represented at those meetings in addition to families. So we are very good at collecting people and moving forward on change. Risk management, this is always a good pitch when you're doing um, or establishing an office. Um, we can help spot issues before they come become really, really big issues. Um, you know, we do work at mediation levels. We do try to resolve things, but it's also our job to raise a flag on when we see problems. And we do that for agencies pretty frequently. Like you have an, you have an issue you have an area of practice that is not consistent with state law and it needs to be remedied. So we do work as that as well. And the child protection system, again, I'm gonna move through this um, quickly, but when I say the child protection system in our jurisdiction, I'm not referring solely to child welfare services. Um, that is just one agency that we consider part of our jurisdiction. We also have the ability in most ombudsman offices have the same to look at law enforcement and their engagements with children, the division of youth services, medical providers, daycare, daycare providers, treatment, behavioral, mental health services, residential child, uh, residential child care facilities. Child protection is a really, really, really big and intricate web. Um, even our agencies have a hard time working through that. And so I just want to demonstrate when we get a call, the layers of every system that we consider for each case that comes into um, our agency. And again, I'm sure that many on this call are very familiar with the child welfare system in their respective states. Um, but we'd like to highlight a child's process or journey through the child welfare system um, because often by the time we're getting the call, they've been in that system for a little bit longer um, than we would like. And so just as a visual demonstration, this is Colorado specific, but this is the process that will happen when a child is removed from their home or when a county department becomes involved with the child. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, our investigation will really mimic a lot of what you see on the screen here. When we go through a case, we're looking at every level. Did this happen according to law? Did this happen according to regulation? Is this okay? Is this the practice we wanna see? Was this decision, is there justification and trails? What does that look like? Um, if a case is closed, should it have been or should we have had ongoing services? Um, and it goes on. Um, it sounds similar to me to the appeals process. Yes, exactly. So that's a great analogy and we use it pretty frequently is, um, now we're probably involved before the child welfare case is closed but we are coming in as a second set of eyes to look at what is happening. And that's why our independent access to records is so crucial um, because we do this without them really knowing what records we're looking at. So if someone calls our office and we pull up the trails file, the child welfare case file, they don't know we're looking at that because we have independent access to those systems. But literally we're checking every single thing um, on this map as we go through that case with that family. Um, and again, I just really like to offer that this is why child protection ombudsman offices are so crucial because we're very unique and that we're able to do this without really, um, any advantage point or any, um, I hate to use a phrase dog in the fight, but like, we can look at this solely from, is this the best practice for this kid? Um, what will the outcome be? So, um, I'm going to move into the history of the CPO a little bit, um, are there any, before I do that, are there any questions regarding ombudsman practice specifically 
um, the development of the office? I think most of our questions that are going to come up, Jordan, are more like one that's we're seeing quite a bit here is, you know, who who do who holds caseworkers or GALs responsible? We hear that all the time that they don't hear from their GAL. Um, how do they provide accountability for individuals, respondent parent councils, GALs, caseworkers who are failing in their duties or violating professional ethics standards? Okay. Um, it says, you know, for with an, over a decade in, around CPS, most issues I've seen are not with policy, but with those who implement or fail to implement it. And I will say, I, I have to agree with that because a lot of times we're so excited when new legislation passes and then somehow it just does not trickle down, yep. right? It just does not trickle down and it, it feels like it was in vain. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I'm is it better for me to address the questions now or just move them into where they fit? I'm happy just to jump into them. I. You know what? Let's do. Let's jump into them just to be sure we can get them answered, and I then do. we'll yeah. we'll pick up again. Perfect. Um, so I just apologize if I lose my um, pace a little bit. Um, so great. These are really really good questions, and they're they're foundational in our practice. So, um, who holds caseworkers accountable? Um, it's not rare that we get calls regarding I'm not hearing from a caseworker. My caseworker is not handling this case appropriate. Um, we have authority to review those cases. And um, what we will do is look first, was rule and was law followed accordingly and how this was handled? Um, and that will include volume seven, Colorado state law. And then we do that, that statutory analysis first. What we then move into, we're like, well, was this best practice though? Um, was this actually what this child and what this family needed based on best practice standards? And was the communication clear? And if I can't tell that there was clear communication because you're not documenting it appropriately here, we will take that with, you know, some severity because if we can't see what's going on in the file, um, we're going to take it very seriously over here and trying to figure out what services were provided. So if we identify issues um, and case practices or how a case was handled, law, regulatory structures, we write what is called a um, letter of CPO concern. We outline the case, we outline the complaint that we received, we outline our concerns about um, violations of state law and regulation, and we will send that to the county department and we're gonna ask for their response. Like, we don't think that you follow these rules accordingly. Um, we'd love your response. They will send us their response um, because the Colorado Department of Human Services serves as the supervising entity for county departments. We send both in our original letter and um, the county's response to the State Department, we make the State Department make a final determination on whether there was a policy violation or not. In the two years we've been doing compliance letters, the State Department has agreed with us 96% of the time. What happens when that happens is the State Department will then hand down corrective action or um, improvement plans to those county departments and sometimes those caseworkers specifically. So that is how we deal with complaints um, that deal with county practice specifically. Now, of course, the alternative is we may not find that there were violations of rule or policy. We didn't think there were concerns of practice, um, but we do document those calls um, still. And they go into our large, our large database of we're hearing this issue again and again and again. And what is the problem here and what is happening? And that is how adoption assistance was sparked. 
caseworkers and county departments weren't violating any rule or law that was in place um, because the rules and laws were inefficient. And so once we got 20 of these cases, that triggered an investigation where we were like, look, the rules and the laws are inadequate and we need to come back and we need to do a real hard look as a state about how to fix this. Um, so when I say every call matters for our agency, they can go in one or two ways, or we can also resolve a case with um, mediation. You're not talking to this family caseworker. Family, this caseworker needs to hear this from you. Let me help you translate your issue right now to get you back to the table. Um, Interesting. I never considered that they may very well be in compliance, but it's what's required of them that's off. Mm -hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Because um, Christy's saying, my understanding is that a GAL is only required to see a child within 30 days of placement and then not required to see them regularly. I, mm -hmm. I thought they had to see them every six weeks or so. Do you know? Yes. I don't know. I don't want to speak off the top of my head. I can look up, but I can I can hit on the calls we get regarding GALs. Um, you know, we, we do we do have um, calls regarding GALs. This is the one area of our statute that is a little restrictive. Because we are housed in the judicial branch, and I mean housed, um, we have to be very um, thoughtful about how we handle cases about GAL practice and the attorney practice really, um, which would include RPC um, and judicial decisions. So what a judge rules in a case. Again, we can't intervene in cases um, or interfere in cases. So typically with GALs, if we have concerns about practice, um, it will be a little bit different than how we handle the cases, but we, we do work to, to communicate those concerns to the necessary agency. So if it's something that we think needs to go to attorney regulation because it's a violation of ethics codes or something like that, we work with our client for a warm handoff to call and we give you two attorney regs to talk about your concerns. And then of course we do the same thing. Look, we're hearing this thing again and again and again, maybe we need to write a letter. Maybe we need to go talk to the head of OCR about like, hey, how can we coordinate on this a little bit better? We work with the heads of RPC, excuse me, Respondent Parents Council and Office of the Child's Representative pretty frequently. Um, and so that's where that data tracking piece comes in. I do just wanna clarify that we do have some restrictions on how we can engage with judicial officers. That's helpful though, because a lot of times foster parents think, well, it's not gonna matter, you know, nothing's gonna change if I submit. It's frustrating for me, but this is just my, the GAL or because, and I want to say we've had many, many fantastic GALs, um, but it does make a difference because you're tracking that data and that could lead to, to a difference in, in, in policy or procedure or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, um, I can give other examples. So, um, we've done a lot of work on uh, residential childcare facilities. Um, and again, it was the same thing. We're just hearing that things aren't going very well here. What is happening here? What is working? Um, it was compliant. It was working with licensing. It seemed to be fitting the rules and regulations, but we found that the two systems responsible for monitoring the care of a child in a facility weren't coordinating very well. You have child welfare services at the county level who should be investigating allegations of abuse and neglect. And then you have licensing, which is monitoring for licensing compliance and violations in the facility itself. Each of these teams, we found in a review of the El Pueblo Boys and Girls Ranch, which closed, thought the other was doing the work, so to speak. It's a very overbroad statement about what we found. But basically, they weren't coordinating enough to hand calls back and forth 
about who should be looking at abuse and neglect and who should be intervening in these cases effectively. And then even more problematically, the public and parents have no idea about issues going on within facilities to make decisions about where to place their kids. And so these are all reports available on our website, but we did make very stern recommendations about transparency in facilities. How can you coordinate this better? And um, just the last week, I got an update from the State Department that they're considering um, expanding their transparency practices and posting incident reports on the website. Um, does that help? Yeah, when you say the State Department, are you talking as high as CDHS or Office of the Child, mm -hmm. Youth and Families, or which section? Um, we work largely with children, youth, and families, um, but we work with leadership of CDHS pretty frequently too. Okay. So I mean, I usually mean kind of the whole thing because it okay. can cross over into DCW and DYS and all of those areas. Anyone possible? Um, These are great questions. If, yeah, I'm going to toss one more your way while we're at it. Someone says, any feedback on EPP laws would be helpful. Most foster parents speak about this with an eye roll. Um, and maybe for those who don't know, explain a little bit about what EPP means. Yeah, um, I just want to make sure because I have two acronyms for EPP, um, if they could clarify which one they I'm want. guessing expedited permanency. Okay, yeah. great. Sorry, there's... There's EPP over here and I didn't want to speak to the wrong one. So EPP laws, um, I'm going to oversimplify. So just, just um, forgive me. Um, I'm not an attorney, but basically the requirements that there be permanency resolution for children in the courts um, in a certain amount of time. And I don't know what that is off the top of my head and I apologize. Um, but where we're seeing issues with that frequently is um, concerns from counties and foster parents um, basically regarding um, legal interventions or um, actions by RPCs, Respondent Parent Council, who are trying you know, to represent parents um, prior to the termination of parental rights. And we are seeing that there is a delay um, in some cases of permanency for children because of that. I think that that's those two systems trying to figure out how to work together. Um, there's a million things that get in way of those actually happening. And I can understand the eye roll because even I understand it's very rare that we actually meet the deadlines and statute for those practices. Um, I will say that has been a huge concern we have had in terms of calls during COVID. Um, it's one of the, it's, it, we heard about it all the time, both for um, oh, termination. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, here's what I know about COVID. Um, according to a, <coughs> um, it's a public, uh, JVC hearing regarding judicial's funding requests this year. Um, I think there's something like 14,000 backlog jury trials in the state of Colorado um, that couldn't happen because of COVID. I mean, we had certain jurisdictions in rural areas renting out convention centers, trying to create space for trials to happen. And of course, as judicial tries to come out of that backlog, they're going, they've stated that they're going to prioritize criminal cases and then certain other cases and orders. So what we're monitoring really closely right now is the impact that has on e, um, on permanency uh, finalization. Um, really hard to see where it's gonna go. I mean, at the end of the day, there's mm -hmm. only so many courtrooms and, and so many judges, but I will say that's a big issue we're watching very closely right now um, because it's it's huge. Because that's that's the end result, right? It delays permanency. 
which, which, you know, you, people may think, well, they're in what's going to be their forever home. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. It really does matter because the kids are like, am I going to be adopted? Am I, am I getting permanency? And it just builds on their, on their trauma. Yeah, um, if I can just hit on that point, it's really helpful when we get those calls because at the point you've just articulated isn't understood very well outside of um, the group of people on this call. And so it's helpful for us to be able to articulate to legislators who don't understand, who may be less familiar about the impacts of not having those issues resolved. Um, and what I mean by that is like, we'll get asked by legislators, well, like, why is this a priority? And like, they're in a home and they're safe and they're well cared for. And then we can explain to them, well, actually, but this is what it looks like for those families. And this is what it looks like for their child. And these are restrictions and this is the impact on the child. So again, this is just a plug for me to say it's even if we can't reach resolution, if we can't intervene with a GAL or RPC directly, it's helpful for us to articulate to leaders and legislators in the state what we're hearing and why this is impactful. And to, that's a big part of our job is to inform legislators about issues impacting families. And I'm I just want to share that because I think it's really important to know. I think that's good to know because our we're often told don't contact the ombudsman unless obviously unless you've gone through your chain of command, right? So you don't hear back from your caseworker, don't call the ombudsman, call the caseworker supervisor initially, right? Um, so the caseworker says that or the well, caseworker? right. A lot of times we, we're told don't don't go directly to the ombudsman when you haven't gone through the correct chain of command through the county. If you take one thing away from this training, it is your right to call the ombudsman whenever you see fit. You are not required by law, by regulation, by anything to go through a different grievance process before you call this office. Okay, that is is totally new to me. Yeah, it is your right to call this agency. You see, I I get like, I get like this when I talk about it. Um, (laughs) Because no, you do not have to go through another grievance process prior to calling us. I understand and I'm not surprised that that, that, um, messaging is being handed down because they're going to want you to go through the county process. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're all adults. And if you recognize where you're going to get a benefit from, and it's not that, why would you go there? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. There is a right to call us when you see fit. And I just, if, if wow. anyone, can okay, that's my big aha for sure. It is call um, us when and with whatever you need. Um, I was going to do like a survey, but you guys already figured it out. So yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to do a quick follow-up on the EPP. Um, someone says in our experience, EPP guidelines are rarely followed. This is certainly an issue with overloaded courts, like you touched on Jordan. Um, Mm -hmm. but the new focus on families first, which doesn't take full effect until October has already caused a visible shift towards extending cases even further. Will Mm -hmm. your office provide analysis on the impact of legislation like families first, especially for the most vulnerable kids who fall under EPP. And let me just really quickly, for those who may not be familiar, I'm going to give a, a, you know, first grade level explanation of what Families First will do. So Families First um, pours a lot, a large, large chunk of funding into the front end of a case. 
also services in the bio family home with the bio family in an attempt to not have to pull the children at all. Now, will some kids still have to be pulled? Absolutely. So there is and will always be a need for foster families. Um, our concern is that once the decision is made that they will need to be pulled is that then we need a, a higher level of a foster parent because we've then sat in our abuse and neglect that much longer. Right. Um, the other part of Families First is that it's having most children who are in residential step down into a foster family setting. And that is I'm, I'm very well intentioned, but also uh, concerning as, again, we, we don't have these numbers of foster families and we need experienced foster families to take these harder cases. Um, and honestly, some kids actually thrive in a residential setting is, is my personal opinion um and, and and need that uh yeah. but anyway that's that's a quick rundown of, of what families first is and I, yeah I so yeah. appreciate the opportunity and the question to address this um because you've really hit a lot of what we're, we're paying attention to um so let me say this about families first we're very 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 plugged in to what is happening to the rollout there is um a number I think that there's going to be some legislation coming down late in the session to address actual implementation of the program we're watching it very, very, very closely. Here's where our work and our ability to publish information becomes um, reliant on the people who are on this phone call today. To get our office into the independent status where we are, there had to be some give and take. We had to come out, originally we were formed under the Colorado Department of Human Services. It didn't work, it really didn't work. And so we needed independence. But the one caveat in our work is um, our investigations are limited to getting a call from the public. I can't proactively open a case if I haven't heard from a member of the public. So I guess I just offer this as a plug. As you start to see issues rolling out in Families First, our office needs to hear about them. I can't guarantee we'll have resolution in all the cases that will be able to change the course of a placement or a case, but that data is crucial for us because we're trying to figure out right now, how do we, report out to the public and the legislature about how this is going in Colorado, because we want to. The issue you've articulated, Renee, about um, residential childcare facilities is something we're acutely aware of, and this agency is in the position that we agree with you. There is and there is going to continue to be a need for residential childcare facilities. There just is. There are children who thrive in it. There are children who need that setting, and we can't expect um, our foster parents to automatically be able to take children who should be in that setting. So we're trying to monitor the situation very closely. Our best data set is hearing from everyone here. That is what makes us unique. The state department can report on their CCAP data and, and what they see and if they close things in a timely manner. And I'm not trying to be flippant about it. That's how they report and they're judicious about it. What makes this agency powerful is when we hear from families and I can go into a legislative hearing and I can say, I heard from 20 families who are having this problem. We need to change the law. We need to address the regulation. Um, and that's what's gonna be crucial as we look at families first in the next six months, particularly after October 1st. Um, the more we hear, the more we're going to be able to, to push and, and look at policy regarding the implementation of that law. And Renee, I know it doesn't totally answer the question, but I want to make sure I maybe hit on the points. 
Yes. And I mean, for me, it's comforting just to hear that this is something that you're really looking into because foster parents don't feel like we often are consulted. (laughs) We're just kind of told to do the work. And it's frustrating because obviously we are the ones with the child 24 seven. So to sometimes not even have a seat at the table is very, very frustrating. Um, There was this question, um, Jordan, and I think this might take a little bit more time. And I want to be really, really sensitive to the to the matter about, you know, what is your role in investigating a foster child death while they are in active foster care? Um, I appreciate this question. I do. Um, You know, my first introduction to this work was reviewing how the state handles um, child fatalities. And Renee, if it's okay, I think I might outlay like the current systems and then talk about our role because they interconnect pretty, if that's okay. So in Colorado, we have two systems statutorily charged with reviewing child fatalities in the state. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment um, reviews the majority of child fatalities deaths in the state, which would include accidental, um, um, it includes accidental, uh, maltreatment deaths, um, suicide. So they do a very broad review of these deaths. Now, what they do when they review these deaths is um, they're de-identified and for the purpose of creating aggregate data across the state. So local teams in the system will review these deaths, um, create their findings and enter their findings into a database that floats up into a federal database. What's problematic in our opinion here is that um, it's not even problematic, it's just their role. But there's no um, public reporting on what these teams find regarding these deaths. So you're not really able to correlate what recommendation these teams in public health are making with specific deaths. So that's one system that reviews deaths in Colorado right now. The Colorado Department of Human Services houses the Child Fatality Review Team. This team is charged with reviewing deaths that meet two criteria. One is the child and or their family had an open child welfare case um, within three years of the child's death. Two, the local county human service department has to deem that the death was caused by abuse and neglect. I've been studying these cases and the system for four years now. And and, and the troubling thing that we're finding here is um, only about 40%, there are about 40% of cases that are deemed uh, abuse and neglect deaths that aren't being reviewed by this team because they don't meet the metric of the child welfare criteria. So if there is a death that involved a child um, who was in a current foster placement and it was deemed that death was um, the result of abuse and neglect, that's going to qualify automatically for review by CFRT. That team meets, they produce both a confidential in-house report and they produce a public facing report um, de-identified. Doesn't name the child, doesn't name um, the caregiver, it does name the county where the child died. Those are the two systems as they currently exist. Our agency just recently, I mean, like literally we passed through the Senate on Thursday, advanced a bill this session that gives our agency independent access to all documents and records regarding fatal, fatal, near fatal and egregious incidents in the state so that we can independently review um, fatalities and events that come into our office through complaints. Again, we can't launch anything until we get the complaint, but now we have a statutory authority to obtain all of those records from, and certain records from the two teams I've just articulated so that we can do an independent report and review ourselves that would result in a public report. Um, So again, 
that is our role. We are triggered by a complaint that comes into the office. We do not proactively open up those cases because we're statutorily unable to, um, but that is how we're going to start to work on fatalities um, broadly. We would not be restricted, however, to only looking at fatalities that had involvement with child welfare services in any given certain period of time, because we want to look at cases um, that are outside that narrow scope. Is that, it's a very detailed answer. Um, okay, okay. It's a very that academic answer, which I hope is okay. Yep. Someone says, do you look at criminal cases and gathered information from detectives and prosecutors regarding foster kids to later hold counties, caseworkers, and GALs accountable, and then also consider new legislation? It's a good question. No, because that would be in violation of um, our enabling statute, which prohibits us from intervening or interfering in a criminal prosecution. Here's what we do do. Um, again, our charge requires us to create public reports for um, issues we've identified. Um, we can write public reports about individual cases or again, the systemic trends that become public that um, prosecutors or detectives can then use in their own investigations and or cases. Um, but we don't, we're not like police who would gather information and then hand it to a prosecutor. Um, they're just able to use whatever we produce in the public sphere, um, however they see fit, honestly. Um, and in terms of caseworkers specifically, um, typically here's how we might handle some of those calls. We might get a call about, um, as I've articulated before, hey, I don't think my caseworker is, is doing this right. I'm not, I'm not feeling this. Um, or we might get a case where like, I'm having a hard time communicating with my caseworker. Um, can you help me? And in those cases, we would really go at a mediation level and contact the county. Often we're working with management or directors at county departments, not the caseworkers themselves. So if we get one of those calls, we're gonna call leadership at a county department and say, hey, something is wrong here, something is off here. Can you help us explain why the caseworker made these decisions in this case? And it's not rare in those circumstances that we're then able to say, okay, you know what, um, back to our client, here's what they're hearing, here's how we can maybe readjust what's going on. Or we can go back to the county and say, look, um, and because often like that leadership at that county might not have an idea what the trails file looks like. Um, and we can say, you're missing documentation. Um, we don't actually know what the caseworker did here. You need to go and address this. So we can handle it that way. In terms of human resource issues with caseworkers, um, we get a lot of calls about, um, and most of these come from, from biological parents um, when their children have been removed, um, but concerns that, hey, this caseworker knows this person and um, unfairly ha had undue influence on why they removed my child, um, or this caseworker is friends with my ex, and, and that's why they pulled my kids. Um, in a case like that, we will review trails documentation to determine if um, the decision to remove was based in fact, if they're supporting evidence. Um, but if there's an HR issue, if there's a conflict of interest, we're gonna report that back to the county leadership so that they can address it um, and or the, the citizen review panel as well. Does okay. that answer that question? Okay, yeah. Um, so many great questions. Thank you guys so much for, for submitting these. This is awesome. In, someone says, in practice, Families First is being interpreted and already used to return already removed children back to bio families that are not meeting their treatment plans. Mm -hmm. Quote, unquote, we don't really have a choice because of 
families first. Is this a misapplication of the law? And is your office in a position to respond to this trend? Um, I don't want to, without having reviewed individual cases, I, I, I don't know if I want to say it's a misapplication. I would say this is exactly what you should call us about because we will review the law. We will review the case independently and we will make a determination if it was handled appropriately. Um, and I'm, that's not me trying to dodge the question. It's just, um, it could be, I don't know. I haven't reviewed the case, but that's, that's the exact kind of thing that we're here for that we would independently review. Okay. Uh, Jordan, how is your agency funded? Oh, that's a great question. We are entirely funded through um, state funds. We have a single line item. Um, and so like other state agencies, we have to go to the joint budget committee every year and submit our budget request. Um, we argue for additional FTE or program funds. Um, I will say we run a very, very tight ship here. Um, uh, when COVID hit, we were able to cut a significant amount of operation funds. We've continued to operate very tightly there, um, but we're, ent we're entirely funded out of state funds. So we don't get influenced by like grants or outside things like that. And that's why we're structured the way we are. I think you covered this in a previous slide, but I just want to make it real clear. Um, someone says, how do people submit a complaint to your office? Is it best to email? Is it best to call? Where's yeah. the best place to start? That's a great question. Um, I was so worried I was gonna have enough to talk about. This is like a fantastic presentation. Thank you guys. Um, you can call us in two ways. Um, one, uh, you can call us. We um, answer all, um, let me back up. You can submit an online complaint, um, which will give you an opportunity to give us your name, your contact info, and, and a short paragraph about what your concerns are or you are welcome to call our agency Monday through Friday, eight to 5 a.m., 5 p.m. Um, and, and you'll talk to a real person. What happens is once you file that initial complaint, um, either through phone or through the online complaint, one of our analysts, and the analyst is going to be the person doing the investigation, will call you back within two business days. Um, and I just say, because we don't make phone calls back on, on Saturdays or Sundays. Um, and they will sit with you and they will do an intake. Most of our intakes, um, I don't know, some people sit and we'll talk to people for like an hour and a half or two hours, but we will sit and you will talk to a live person within two days of your complaint so that we can hear from you what is going on. They will talk about next steps with you. They will talk about our confidentiality requirements um, uh, and, and really just hear from you what is going on. Most of the time we can work to get a case resolved in 60 business days. Um, but sometimes we need to go longer and sometimes we can go shorter. We might resolve cases um, at that big investigative level, but again, just keep in mind, most of those cases are the result of aggregate calls and trends that we've identified. We resolve a lot of our cases at the assist level, which is where maybe we're pulling records, we're talking to relevant agencies, we're getting additional collateral information from our clients. And then a lot of our cases, we result in what we call um, information resource referrals. It's really important to me to stress we don't just hand off phone numbers and send you to someone else. Um, you know, a great example of that is uh, uh, Sherlock programs in the state. Uh, we'll get people calling who, who need representation or need some help to understand um, how to go through some court processes. We will actually make a phone call to the Sherlock program and make sure that they're ready for your call. Um, so we do very, very warm handoffs for that. But um, in terms of complaint online or phone, both are answered within the same, same timeframes. Um, 
and you will have a live person. And that's something that we really pride ourselves on is I don't make you fill out a form for your intake. I want to hear from you and I want to hear about your case individually. Okay. This is so, so helpful. I have just learned so much. I'm so glad. Um, this might be a little too specific, but let me lob it at you just in case. Uh, I have one grandson that is at a group home and I have asked the caseworker about him and all she says is he is doing fine, but she has not given me the number to where he's at. That's a, that's a, I'm just thinking, um, again, definitely something to call our agency for. I don't know off the top of my head what volume seven requires the caseworker to provide, um, so if you got the call, that's where you would start. That's Let's where we're going to start. Volume seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's worth noting too, that our analysts are all certified um, caseworkers. And, and the reason I say that is because that's how tuned in they are to the practice. That's, that's how, and they keep their certification while they work here. Um, so they really know how counties should be operated, how caseworkers are trained. Um, you know, what it really avoids like, well, that wasn't, well, yeah, but we went through the same training. So we, we do understand that the thing, but that is something I would call us for. That also gives me a good opportunity to address an issue that we do have in some cases. Um, there is some limitations legally on what we can release to certain clients who call us. So an example is, um, you know, I'll, I'll just play an aunt who has um, really no legal right to the child at the time she calls, may call us with concerns. We will go through the case. We are a little limited um, on what information we can release back to that aunt um, once we resolved our case. We can say, hey, look, we did find um, some practice concerns or da 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 da. We've notified the county and that's how we're going to close it out. Um, but I couldn't necessarily give exact details of that child's care as opposed to, like, if I hear from a biological mother whose uh, parental rights are still intact and she has concerns about the child, I can, in that instance, maybe explain, like, okay, um, your child was removed for the following reasons, which I see documented in trails. So there is a little bit of um, legal considerations we have to give when we're communicating findings. But again, I, I really want to stress that every call builds the bigger case for bigger issues in the state. Um, but that is something to consider if you call our office as well. Perfect. Um, what, how, how much did we not get covered in your presentation? Um, someone is asking, would you share your contact info, which I'm sure you, you will. Yes. Um, is, um, uh, there's probably a, a slide of how to, how to do that, which we can then also upload into the handouts tab. Everyone, yes. um, this whole, this whole presentation, by the way, is already in the handouts tab in our classroom, um, and will remain there even after today. And once this goes to an on-demand version of this class. So you will have access to this ongoing. Um, I'm, I'm just, um, I, if, if, if there's time or if there's interest, Renee, I can share a little bit about how we can work directly with you, if that's beneficial to this group. I do think that would be helpful, yes. Okay, great. Um, so I promised a video, so I should probably deliver at least one. Um, but I, in the last year, um, oh, I see there's a raised hand. Um, sorry, I can't always see. We'll help her, no worries. Okay, great. Um, in the last year, the CPOs made it a very, um, well, it's a priority for this agency to start doing more direct youth outreach 
um, and to start building services and programs that will encourage and will allow youth to contact us directly. Um, we've just found this to be really, really important in hearing from youth and getting their perspective. And, and, and this is kind of in two tracks for our agency. One is we have greatly expanded um, our involvement with youth who are currently residing in the Division of Youth Services facilities. Um, youth in those facilities have the ability to contact us directly from a phone we have had set up in each facility. So we're hearing from youth directly. But we also hear um, from foster youth pretty frequently. Um, and I will say one of the most common things we hear from foster youth who call us um, is when they're scared or they're frustrated that they're going to be moved out of their current placement. Um, I think I included in here an example um, from a young woman who contacted us, she just sincerely was confused and hadn't been informed adequately by her caseworker what was happening. Um, she wanted to stay where she was. She was worried they were coming that night. And this is a case where we were able to immediately come in and say, you need to go talk to this youth. You need to go um, and talk about this with her and explain this to her and make sure that she feels comfortable and is informed about what is happening. Um, right now, our agency is working on um, a brief that really dissects the current um, foster bill, uh, uh, excuse me, um, foster youth bill of rights. Um, what is articulated in that law and, and how can we ensure that youth are informed of that? Um, how can we support foster parents in making sure that they're able to um, accommodate everything that is required of them in that law? So I did want to let everyone here know that is something we're producing. We anticipate releasing within the next six, six weeks or so, and I will definitely share it with Renee. Um, so that you guys can view that as well. But that's kind of the work we're really trying to do in this area of practice. But um, going the wrong way here. Um, I'm not gonna make you watch the video, but there is a specific tab on our website that's called um, Services for Youth. And this includes this video that they can watch about our services. We have a youth specific complaint form. So if a youth wants to write into us, um, and use that complaint form, it actually gives them extra boxes about where they can enter extra information. Um, it includes their collaterals. Of course, they're always welcome to call us as well, um, but we are seeing an uptick in the calls we're getting from youth and, and we think that's a really good thing. Um, just wanna make sure I'm not missing anything. So here's just a few questions we get from youth pretty um, frequently is how do I get business with my family? Um, and that it's both in foster care and, and in the DYS setting more specifically, um, but they're, often questions about who's making decisions about where I go and why I'm going and why is this happening? How do I advocate for myself? Lots of questions about how to find siblings. Um, lots of questions about why they can't go home. Um, for some older youth or some aged out youth, it's questions about how do we get documentation? Um, and then more in the DYS setting again, it's what do I do if someone is hurting me? So we are really extending those services to direct um, to work directly with youth. Um, we've done a lot of outreach to youth panels about how to improve um, our collateral, how to contact us. Um, and I'm really hoping as COVID starts to ease up, we're gonna be able to get out in the community a little bit more uh, and do some direct outreach there. Um, Renee, I'm sorry, I went over that really quickly and I'm sure. No, that was interesting. And I wanted to mention because you, uh, you mentioned a foster child bill of rights. Um, I wanted to mention that there is a new freshman representative in Colorado from Weld County. Her name is Tanya Van Bever. She was a foster parent in Weld County. She fostered teens. She's actually, we both grew up in Eaton. She's been a friend of mine since kindergarten. She's really fantastic. Um, she 
uh, tried to sponsor a foster parent bill of rights this this uh, session it was killed before it even got to committee um but that is something that i know she will be working on over the summer if you have any interest in in you know helping her decide what things should be in that um you can email us and we'll put you in touch with her but uh, jordan would that be something that you would do as well as in, um, would would you guys um, contribute to that? We are, we would definitely be a stakeholder in that, and great minds must think alike because we actually have um, spoken with Representative Van Beber on some of her efforts, including awesome. that one. And so she's aware of us and, and is working with our legislative uh, liaison on uh, plugging us into all of her efforts um, in between the sessions. So yes, she sure. has really hit the ground running. I have to yeah. say, um, and it, she is sponsoring the license plate for us. And mm-hmm. she just, it feels so good to have a foster parent in the house oh of representatives gosh. because I think it was it's incredible to talk to like difference. She clicking she, and I was so yes. impressed. She's a lifelong educator. She's, she's very, very smart. Um, I have a couple other questions that came in. Yeah. Um, Someone says, I know this Q&A is geared towards foster parents, but I'm wondering if you take complaints concerning child welfare cases in family court with bio parents. NBC News is reporting cases where domestic violence is being ignored in custody disputes. It's a great question. Um, And it's, it's kind of a, a yes and no. Um, again, uh, we can't intervene in court proceedings. So if, 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 the, if the complaint were to come to us of um, this judge um, didn't listen to this portion, we, we can't intervene in that. Um, but again, here's where that's important. Um, it, I mean, it's public knowledge, but I, I, I'm wondering if folks have seen the recent coverage of the Arapahoe County judge um, who has been censured and resigned for, okay. Um, we can gather information like, and we have, and we heard cases and that's when we can provide that information to appropriate people or do a public report about it. So, um, that is a growing area that we're very plugged into because we do hear a lot about that from families calling us. So I, I, I want to enforce, we're hearing that we're hearing the crossover between high conflict um, domestic relations cases and dependency and neglect cases and what courts are doing to address that. Where we could plug in on that for sure is um, what is going on before it reaches uh, the hearing and becomes something that's solely under the discretion of the judge, but we can't intervene in what GALs might be saying or, or um, what RPCs might be doing. So again, that's, that's just kind of the gray zone and I'm sorry I keep hitting that point with some of the legal stuff. Um, it's just, that's the one area of our statute that's uh, restrictive to our work. Um, but again, big trend, big issues. The more we hear about it, the more we can write about it and the more we can put it in the public sphere to give potentially legislators some information about maybe maybe we need to address like the law and what's presented or maybe you know we can send something to the judicial branch about, hey, like we're hearing this, we're hearing this. Maybe you need to do some training or some CLE work on this. So. Does that answer that question, Renee? I'm sorry. I feel like it's a little roundabout. Oh, I don't feel like that at all. I think we all understand the the position that that you're in. Um, Okay, we actually, guys, uh, edited this class to be 90 minutes today instead of two hours um, because uh, we weren't sure it it would take the full two hours. We're kind of coming up on 90 minutes. Jordan, Is what haven't you covered that you would still like to cover? 
Honestly, I've covered everything and I'm happy to stick around until everyone's questions are answered. Super. Um, I did link to Rep Van Bever's uh, page in the Colorado house in case anyone would like to connect with her. I will say there are several representatives that are very interested in child welfare and very helpful. Um, I do find it nice that in my opinion, child welfare tends to be nonpartisan. So a lot of times we, we don't have those struggles, mm -hmm. which is nice. Um, so, um, someone says, how does the Colorado Ombudsman protect against retaliatory nature? Good question. Um, it's addressed in our statute. Um, so a case can move forward in a number of different ways. Um, can you explain what that even means first, Jordan? Oh, a retail. So thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, it's not rare that we get calls from clients and citizens who are like, I, I, I really need help, but I don't want the county to know I'm talking to you or I don't want DYS or I don't want so-and-so to know that I'm talking to you because I'm afraid that they're going to use that information, get mad, and, and it'll affect how they make decisions in my case. Um, this is really common for youth who are like, I'm kind of afraid to call you because I don't want the staff here to take it out on me that like I, I talked about them. It's, it's really common. Um, and here's, here's how a couple cases can move forward because we really want what it, whoever, whomever our client is to be comfortable. So a client may call us, may state these questions. Um, what we will do is we can go through that whole trails analysis, that whole independent analysis. But before we call the county department um, to discuss the case, we will call our client and say, okay, here's what we found. Here's our questions. Are we good to move forward and call the county? And here's why. We will never reveal who our client or our who contacts. By law, we cannot. I cannot say, hey, I heard from Jane Doe. She's really worried about X. Um, you know, I just need to talk to you about it. We won't do that. Um, now, that being said, if I call a county department and we're concerned about a child, this child's case, the county concern, and I, I'm using the counties as an example, you guys, because um, I think they're relatable, but just please know we have cases in all different systems. Um, but a county department or another entity may be able to guess on a number of handful of times who it is that's talking to us. Um, what we always tell clients is if you feel you've been retaliated against, if you feel something there has happened, you need to call us so that we can review and we can address it. Because by law, no one can be retaliated for contacting our office. So we take that very serious and we emphasize to our clients that you need to call us if you feel that is happening, particularly for youth. Um, because it's not, you know, I, I think it's important to note that a number of our clients are caseworkers themselves. They work at facilities, they're medical providers, um, they're law enforcement officers, they're social workers at hospitals, they're doctors, they're nurses. There are people who call us um, in addition to family members and, and foster parents um, who will have a lot at stake um, to call us. So we take that really serious. Um, we handle it on a case-by-case -case basis to do our best to ensure we can avoid it, um, but we will address it if it happens. I'm guessing that's something that people consider before they call, right? Because I'm guessing in a lot of cases, in order to really have something happen sooner or later, the caseworker or GAL or whoever it is, is going to know. Yeah. And that's why we ask. And it's not rare that like, you know what, you looked in the, you looked in the case file. I feel like you've given me information again, if it's appropriate to divulge that information it depends on the case. Um, but uh, that's why we ask with the youth specifically youth living in DYS, it can be kind of hard because we have to set up a video call. 
But um, again, we're working really closely with DYS leadership to address that in staff. So it's the nature of ombudsman work is always fluctuating, but we have the ability to address our practice as we need to. Again, I hope that helps. This is a great question though. I forgot that someone had mentioned this earlier. Can we find data or statistics on the number of cases reported, the number of cases investigated with number of action plans created per county, like per month or per year? It would be interesting to see trends and maybe helpful to identify opportunities for additional resources. Um, and I'm um, sure you guys data, track that, but do you, do you publish that? Um, in terms of data um, from our calls or data that we see in, in the system broadly? From calls to your office. Yes, we do track that. Um, we're working right now, again, we're always developing on, on creating um, quarterly or biannual reports that detail our calls. We're actually doing a massive over, not massive, I shouldn't oversell it. It feels massive because I'm in the middle of it, but we're doing a, an adjustment to our internal database right now that's going to allow us to get um, data faster. We can get it now, but we're going to start pulling data to articulate the types of calls we're getting. Um, how many cases result in those letters that I've just articulated. Those letters we don't publish proactively, but are absolutely available pursuant to Cora. So um, we can release those letters as soon as we get them. All those big investigative reports and issue briefs I've talked about, those are public. Those are on our website. You can go they're under the special initiatives tab and read about them. Um, but we're working right now to enhance our database so that we can pull data, including um, race equity and inclusion data more frequently so that we can publish that out um, to citizens and, and legislators faster. So it's a work in progress, but that being said, um, I'm a public agency. And so if you have specific data questions about what we're seeing, you are more than entitled as a citizen to call me um, and file a core request and I will work with you to get that data set um, if we don't have it proactively prepared. I do that a lot. Um, again, former reporter, so really big on information <laughs> yeah, sharing. For sure. Um, an out-of-state attendee this morning sa says, what about retaliation in general? Like if you file to intervene, for example, and they take and they remove the child. So the complaint would be about, I feel I was retaliated against because like they, I removed, they removed the child because I intervened. And that's, that's the complaint that comes to us. Yeah. Yeah. We handle calls like that. Mm -hmm. okay. And in, and in a case like that, what we would do is um, basically we would review the case file and, and collateral materials to figure out. And again, this is where it's kind of the law is, is it a violation of law and is the law appropriate, but if there's justification in that case file for that removal, that's kind of where we start. And then we start looking at other things that may have influenced that decision. But we do get calls like that pretty frequently, actually. That's sad. <laughs> that's sad. Um, okay. Um, in the interest of everyone's time, I'm going to have Lindsay pop on for a minute. Jordan, if you don't mind to stop sharing, yes. I'll have Lindsay pop on and walk everyone through getting their certificate. Um, in case anyone needs to jump off. So here in red is your verification code for today. Summer, all lowercase. Let that hang out for just a second. And then, so to get your certificate today, one second, I have too many tabs open. There we go. Now, there's Gordon's contact info in the in the chat. Everyone, all right. Are we seeing my dashboard? Yes, we are. Okay, perfect. Show where you found your dashboard. 
So when you log in, right over here is your dashboard. You will, mine's gonna look slightly different. Let's see. So you would click dashboard and then it comes up like this. Of course, mine's already moved now for the love. I know. Uh, it's hard to show because we're showing it on the admin side. Um, crap. You'll find Where did it go, Renee? <laughs> under completed maybe but you didn't complete it yet i didn't i don't know why it's doing this to me do you oh, want me to try it here we go let me try this there we go there it is okay okay so you just have a green check mark for webinar already, and it should be verification code open. Type in your code and hit submit. You're gonna get a pop-up that says it was successful. We have our survey, please take the time to fill this out. Do not follow my example. Yeah, today this is gonna help both us and the Ombudsman's office. Um, so please take a few minutes and give us some, some feedback. It's really helpful for us, um, for funders, to be honest. They want to see that this is helping you in your, in your foster parenting experience. And of course, we want it to be helpful. Number nine is your thoughts and feedback for Jordan on the class. And I will be sharing that with her. So please include that. And please know I talk really fast and I apologize in advance for that. But I'm so sorry. I just talk really fast. <laughs> Once you fill everything in, hit finish, you're again going to get a pop-up that it was successful. And most importantly, you have to hit this viewer print your certificate button. It's not complete until you hit that button. It will pop up your certificate and you can close it. Now you have four green check marks. That means your class is complete. You can always access your certificates from your dashboard. So you go to transcript and achievements. Every class you've completed is listed here. And so like here's today's and I can click viewer print certificate and there's my certificate. You can use the print this page button and download it as a PDF if you do not want to print it. Um, and then let's see if I'll be able to get back to the class again on my dashboard. I was gonna show you, Jordan sent some handouts to us. I was going to show you where to find those. So on the class dashboard, there's a tab called handouts. And here's several handouts Jordan sent, including her presentation, which I believe had a slide in it for all your contact info. I think it does. And um, I put my direct contact in here for everyone, as well as a, a link for the website and my contact. Now, after today, Lindsay, this will appear unavailable for what, about a week while we're getting it up on demand? Correct. So, I mean, it's going to be available to you if you were here and you need to complete your components, but okay. I suggest you do that today. 
please do that soon because once it turns to on demand, your certificate's going to say you watched it on demand and not live. And we're not going to be able to change that once it's up on demand. So please do it sooner rather than later. Is that correct, Ms. Lindsay? Yes. Okay. Perfect. All right. It looks like we've already had some people that needed to hop out. Yes, class is officially over. Thank you so much, everyone, for attending. And Jordan, oh my gosh, thank you. This was so helpful. Good. I'm so glad. And please call, email, call us. We're your best, we're your resource. And and do not feel like you ever have to go through another, I'm going to say it again, you do not have to go through another grievance process before you call us, if that's the one thing I can impart on everyone today. <laughs>